Welcome to the first episode of Time Passages. My name's Chris. My name's Beth. And today we're going to be talking about the First World War and the state of Germany at the conclusion of that war. Now, for most of this podcast, we're going to be focusing on 1917 and 1918, but I think we need to take a little step back to 1914 and understand how the war was actually fought, because in many ways it ties up with the issues in 1917 and 1918. Beth, do you want to just uncover why we've got this situation where we have trench warfare? So Germany wanted to uh, win the war rapidly in the summer of 1914, and this was called the Schlieflin Plan. So what they had to do was they were going to go through Belgium towards France and defeat France within uh, six weeks so they were ready for a war on the Eastern Front by defeating the Western um, Allies. However, Belgium put a stop up to this and they didn't let Germany go through. So France were able to fight back. Germany then were pushed back and they've got a war now on two fronts coming from the Western with the Allies and then the Eastern with Russia, which has now got you into trench warfare and we've got a stalemate happening at the minute. And in many respects, that trench warfare then extends all the way up to 1917 and 1918. And I guess that's exasperated even more once America comes into the conflict. And part of that's to do with the Kaiser and unrestricted submarine warfare. I mean, Beth, what what, what exactly is this unrestricted submarine warfare? Um, so it was Germany's uh, policy of attacking like all military and civilian shipping. Um, it was trying to sink supplies for Britain because obviously Britain is an island. We've got water surrounding us. We're going to have to use our navy. So it's by Germany are going straight for us, trying to get our navy because we've got the best navy in the world. Which of course then brings, as you say, the Americans into the conflict, and it just brings that extra dimension, uh, resources, material, men into the conflict, and this is going to be difficult for Germany to deal with. Another facet to this is the fact that the economy is straining by 1917. Uh, One of the things that uh, Germany did at the very start of the war to ensure that it had enough funds to fight it was to issue war bonds. Now, war bonds are a great thing. The public, uh, through drives done around in the towns and cities, would donate money and in return would be given war bond slips. Uh, sort of a receipt for their um, commitment to the war. It was a sign of patriotism, a sign of uh, doing their bit for their country, but also if the war was successful, they would reap the benefits and rewards from that, so they would gain a surplus of money having invested in the war. But can you see a problem with this? You've got to win the war to get the benefits (laughs) of this. Exactly, and here's the problem. By 1917 and 1918, it's clearly not going the way for the Germans. So there is a lot of inflation sort of creeping in at home. I guess there's also a social uh, dimension to the inflation. So workers are being forced to work even longer hours, but wages are falling. Um, So average prices within Germany, they doubled uh, between 1914 and 1918, whereas wages rose by only like 50 to 75%. So it's just not working out, it's not level. Mm. There's that extra social dimension to the inflation crisis. Sticking with the aspect of social issues, I guess we can also see in 1917, 1918, this emerging black market. Now, all the countries that were involved in World War One, to a certain extent, saw a black market. I mean, within Britain in 1917, 1918, we were trying to skirt around um, compulsory uh, rationing. 
but it's quite an issue within Germany as well, isn't it? Yeah. So rationing is something we always associate with World War Two. Some, that's something that sticks within my mind, but it did also happen in World War One, and um, particularly in Germany, there was an extremely cold winter in 1916-1917. Now, the, I love this nickname. It's one of my favourite things. It's the turnip oh, winter, yeah. um, and it's a severe, a severe food and fuel shortage. So this is in the cities. This is where all like the factories are going to be, where all the people are, where the workers are. So if you think you've got workers working long hours and there's not enough food there, it's um, there's going to be. It's just going to cause a lot of problems. There's a failure of the potato crop, so it's forcing people to rely on turnips, hence the name the turnip winter. And I guess in many ways, when it starts affecting people on the home front who are distant from the war, you know, they're not seeing the bloodshed, they're not seeing the fighting, that kind of has a greater effect in many ways because they're the ones that are sending their sons, their fathers, their brothers out to the war. That's where disillusionment is going to creep up and get worse and worse. So the disillusionment of um, on the home front is extended by the casualties. So you've got two million Germans are killed um, and a further six million are wounded and they are coming home. You've got physical disability, you've got emotional trauma for these soldiers and their family and it's not easy to put into statistics. And this is now coming, bringing what's going on on the front right home. And I guess that pretty much coincides with March 1918, where we see the uh, failure of the final offensive. Uh, this was a chance for Germany to escape from the military defeat that came with signing a peace treaty with Russia in March of 1918, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And that basically saw um, a, re a renewed confidence almost within the German high command that actually, you know what, we've, we've dealt with the Russians in the east, now we can put all our energies uh, into the west. So we see this last major dip attempt um, offensive on the Western Front to really push forward. And actually it works. Uh, for the first couple of weeks, uh, there are strong signs that the uh, Western Allies are being routed. But the further you move West, what becomes restricted? Supply lines. Exactly. Resources. Yep. So that's really what hits it. And then obviously then we start to see the retreat. And from there onwards retreating backwards backwards into home territory it's stretching a resources uh, resources that were already stretched even further and this is why germany then have to start retreating and also at this point we've also got to take into consideration that germany had allies uh, countries such as austria turkey bulgaria so as soon as they start to crumble and disintegrate the whole cohort of the Axis, if it were the, the or shall I say, the central powers here, uh, is 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 weakened. And you've still got two strong colonial powers being on the western front of Britain and France, who are calling mm. on their colonies and on their empires to come and help them. So as as the uh, central powers are falling, the Allies are not getting any weaker. The central character with the March Offensive in 1918 was General Ludendorff, and in many ways, a spotlight needs to be cast upon him. Uh, to understand his role in 1918. One thing that needs to be taken into consideration is that Germany uh, was an autocracy ruled by a Kaiser. And that's nothing like what we've got in the UK. We've got a constitutional monarchy. So the monarch has uh, limited powers within the lines of the constitution and the people um, and the government helped it make the decisions rather than just one person. And also unlike the republics of the USA and France. So in many ways the war was run by one man, 
as you would expect an autocracy, the Kaiser and his clique of military advisors and personnel. And Ludendorff came to the realisation that the war couldn't continue as it was currently going. Uh, something needs to change. And here we get the October reforms. Essentially, the October reforms would see a massive change that had not taken place in Germany since 1871. Essentially, out would go the old and in would come the new. Out would go autocracy and in would come a constitutional monarchy. Essentially, the Kaiser would remain in place, but would have to work with a civilian government. So why on earth was Ludendorff considering this as an option? Well, potentially there are two reasons behind this. One is that he felt that maybe if it was showing signs of willing to change, he could get better peace terms out of the victorious powers, the Western Allies. And I guess, Beth, the second aim could be... Is the prospect of revolution. Germany looked towards Russia. They'd just done a deal with them and a pact to um, end the war on the Eastern Front. But there is a revolution going on within Russia and they are terrified of communism and they don't want that to be coming into the new Germany that they want to build. So he's got these two aims in his mind. One, that it shows to the Western allies that they're willing to change. And the second aim being to avert revolution on the style of a Russian model taking place within Germany. However, I feel there is a third ulterior motive here and one that students should be aware of. And that is essentially, who is going to get the blame here for the war going pear-shaped and wrong? Well, it's going to be the military majors and the military generals that were in charge of running the war. So I guess it kind of absolves, absolves the blame from them in many ways. Saying, look, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. Instead, it was your civilian government that came out of the October reforms. They're the ones that messed everything up. And I guess this is where we come into the classic uh, phrase that most GCSE students are aware of, um, but as important at A-level, is the stab-in-the-back myth. The stab-in-the-back myth, in many ways, comes out of these October reforms. Um, do you want to explain, Beth, what exactly the stab-in-the-back myth is? So we're kind of looking forward, but also looking backwards with this uh, stab-in-the-back myth. It's... It's the distorted view that the German army, um, they'd not lost the First World War, and actually it was unpatriotic groups like Jews, for example, um, that had determined the loss of Germany. So this is what weakens the Weimar Republic. And also creates this animosity between certain groups within Germany, such as the Jews. What I feel is quite interesting about the stab in the back myth is that he's able to purport it basically because Germany was never invaded. If you take a normal civilian on the home front, to them their country has never been invaded. They've never seen the bayonets of the British soldiers or the gunshots of the French. So to them the war has not been lost, so we're able to create this myth that, well actually, who did lose this war for us? It's not the soldiers. It's the people that have signed this agreement and that's easiest to, uh, to blame the people that are an unknown, this new Weimar government, than the people that have actually done it. And you can lump in that the Jews as a scapegoat, but also the communists and the left-wing leaning people. So the October reforms really came in the background of this. Uh, on the 3rd of October 1918, we get Prince Max von Baden, a moderate conservative, and he was appointed chancellor under these new October reforms. 
Now, he was an interesting candidate because he had democratic views and he had a well-established international reputation because of his work with the Red Cross. So, chosen specifically because he seemed quite suitable for the role. Quite a safe option. In the following month, a series of constitutional reforms came into effect, which turned the clock away from autocracy and more towards a parliamentary democracy. So these reforms um, consist of Kaiser Wilhelm II giving up his powers over the army and the navy to the Reichstag. You've got the new chancellor and his government, they're made accountable to the Reichstag and not the Kaiser. And then at the same time, um, armistice negotiations are, with the Allies are opened. So what we essentially get in such a short space of time is a move away from autocracy to a representative parliamentary democracy. But as we'll see in the next episode, this is not going to last. So we're just going to quickly sum up what we've learned today in this particular podcast. We've learnt the following. That Germany's military defeat was namely for a variety of reasons. We've got the issues of stalemate, the strength of allies and the failure of the March offensive of March 1918. Then you've got the socio-economic effects of the First World War. So you've got the food and fuel shortages, so the turnip winter that we were talking about. You've got the casualties that's coming uh, back from the front. And you've got inflation, so workers working longer hours and wages are not um, going at the same rate. And you've also got the political changes that are happening in October of 1918, where we see Prince Max von Baden assume the helm uh, to uh, represent a aspect of parliamentary democracy rather than total autocracy. So, thank you for listening. I've been Chris. I've been Beth. And look out for episode two. <laughs>